Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Un sinfín de variadísimas actividades en un entorno seguro y 100% angloparlante. Acompañados en todo momento de monitores Vaughan. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al Western civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams, and on this program, I'm going to be talking a little about one of the great heroes of the early days of the British Empire, a great hero in the conquest of India named Clive, Robert Clive, and uh, his his role has always been marked by a certain amount of controversy, a uh, certain ambiguity, and uh, he's, he, he has been loved and he has been hated. And, well, one of the things that um, Clive and people around that time, we're talking about the middle of the 18th century, when the British Empire was was beginning to grow, and certainly after the North American colonies had united and become independent, formed the United States. And there had to be a plan B somewhere. The The obvious role models were to look back to to the Spanish Empire, right? To the, the old enemy and the great figures of the Spanish Empire, Cortes and Pizarro, the two men who had found the two great civilizations of the New World. And uh, because of a combination of luck and resourcefulness, had been at the right place at the right time to be able to defeat those uh, empires, those civilizations, and and uh, conquer them in the name of Spain. Of course, Hernán Cortés, uh, controversial and and colorful, uh, systematically disobedient, systematically resisting authority. And, um, you know, in his private life, always in trouble with women. Uh, he left his wife in Cuba 
couldn't stand her. And then uh, when, when she finally arrived in Mexico, she died in a very violent way, uh, unexpectedly. And, of course, the official story was that she had died of natural causes. Meanwhile, as well, um, Cortez abandons the La Malinche, and we don't know how many others. And back in Spain, marries into the nobility, right? A, a Zuniga goes up to uh, Astorga, which is uh, the reason that the people in Astorga were, were some of the very first Spaniards to try chocolate. And Astorga today is, is famous for its chocolate. You know, it's like eating a little bit of history. But, uh, yes, love him or hate him, um, the magnitude of his achievement is indisputable. Uh, there are many people who say that, uh, yes, uh, he was just there as the catalyst in a civil war. And that if Cortes had not appeared on the scene, this civil war against the Aztecs would have taken place anyway. For me, that doesn't subtract from the magnitude of his accomplishments. The admiral th admirable thing is that um, he was he was willing to risk it all, and he was um, a great leader, an excellent commander. Now, as for Pizarro, born in um, Trujillo, and related, distantly related, uh, to Cortes, evidently um, a cousin of Cortes's, because Cortes's um, grandmother had been a, a Pizarro. And yes, um, some people say that when he was a child, he was a porquero, right? He was a swine herd. Swine is just another name for pig. And um, like so many others at the time, um, illiterate. Whereas, well, Cortes had been in Salamanca. Cortes was a letrado and Cortes knew how to, um, how to defend himself. He wrote all kinds of letters justifying what he was doing. He had arrived in Peru with 168 men, and all of them had come to the New World with with the idea of bearing um, difficulties, right? Aguantar. And uh, all of them with the idea, as, as they used to say, valer mas, not just in monetary terms, but <laughs> including monetary terms, but yes, valer mas. Very few of them with any pretensions to aristocracy. And this was largely, yes, a consequence of being at the right place at the right time. The last indigenous leader, Huayna Capac, was very ill when he died. He left two sons, Huascar by his first wife, and Atahualpa by his second wife. Atahualpa was from a, a northern tribe that had been conquered by the Inca. And um, when the Inca conquered, there was a process of acculturation, uh, yes, acculturation, um, an Incaization. They wanted all parts of the empire to be identical to each other. So there, there, there was mass movement of peoples to, to try and achieve a homogenization of the empire. These people had to abandon their own culture and start to speak, dress, and act like Incas. In this, it kind of reminds me of the Assyrian Empire, right? The Assyrians that uh, came and, and took away the ten tribes of Israel as as part of a um, uh, something that they were doing systematically. 
in order to resist the, uh, or rather to, uh, to suppress the capacity to resist or insubordination on the part of conquered people. However, in the case of Atahualpa, I'm wondering, you know, if, if his, rather, if his uh, mother had, had been from the, um, this conquered kingdom, perhaps there was a stigma. In any case, the, the original idea I have read is that Huayna uh, Capac, the father, was going to give each of his sons part of the kingdom, divide the kingdom in two. But that was not considered satisfactory by either of the two. Both sons wanted it all. And so the result was going to be fratricide. Atahualpa triumphed, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. The kingdom was debilitated and vulnerable to these 168 Europeans. Of course, Atahualpa, you know, if, if he had won, uh, then he had a very strong interest in the horses. He was really curious about the horses and he had a strong desire for the for the Incas to acquire these animals, and then uh, some of them would have been some some of the uh, Spaniards uh, they would have been sacrificed, and others would have been used as either eunuchs, right, eunucos, or or slaves. And so perhaps it's you know it's common for some people to think of Pizarro as the villain of the story, but that does not make Atahualpa the hero. There were some very strange moments there toward the end. Um, um, Atahualpa was kept alive as long as he could provide silver and gold. He gave Pizarro everything Pizarro asked for, but still, that wasn't enough. He probably knew Pizarro's intention was to kill him. In any case, they say that at the last moment, in exchange for his life, he was given the option of converting to Christianity, which he did. He was baptized and took the name Francisco, the name of his captor. But if that was the deal, then um, then Pizarro acted in a... Uh, a very cruel and dishonorable way because in spite of the conversion um, Atahualpa was strangled then of course in later life both Cortes made to suffer because his actions were called into question and Pizarro with his great nemesis Diego de Almagro Pizarro is what 70 years old and he's, he's at dinner entertaining friends and uh, this group of 10 men break in including Almagro's sons and they simply kill Pizarro. So these are not you know, not exactly exemplary lives, not exactly happy lives, but still the kind of lives that um, that somebody like Robert Clive would would really uh, admire and and try to, to emulate. And so the Robert Clive, whose life was not happy, uh, Robert Clive, for many, many years, occupied in the British Empire, in the pantheon of the British Empire, occupied the same position that a Cortes or a Pizarro would occupy in Spanish imperial history. As I say, um, uh, because it is, um, because it is sort of ambiguous and because, um, he was both loved and hated. You will probably not find anyone from Britain today who can tell you anything coherent about Robert Clive except the small minority that, that you know, studies history. Clive is no longer 
taught to English school children, but there were generation after generation, and they all they all knew about Robert Clive. And uh, Clive had been Clive had been a nobody, uh, the, the exact kind of nobody that was often sent out into the um, into the empire, out into the East India Company. He he was very bad at school. Uh, one of his teachers called him an unlucky boy. Uh, uh, the, well, uh, the, the consensus was that he would never get anywhere in life and um, that he was the typical niño tonto. His parents got tired of him, and when he was about 18 years old, they sent him to a friend in India. And, um, you know, people, people like that, teenagers who were being sent to India, um, it was either to make your fortune or to die of a fever. Because those tropical places were considered the, uh, the cemetery of Europeans, right? The mortality rate was, uh, absolutely horrific. Now, he had very bad luck on the way out. The voyage <laughs> lasted more than a year. Obviously, before steam travel, I mean, 50 years later, yeah, you could walk, you could go on a steamship, but, but, um, you were dependent on the wind. And if you, if you had a delay or if you were there at the wrong time, you go to the, um, Indian Ocean. And if the monsoon wind is not with you, you're going to have to wait six months. In any case, he was, yeah, more than a year in transit. And when he arrived, he found that that, that friend of his parents had gone ban- back to England so that he was alone with no money, no connections, no friends. And well, he had to move, right, to, to, to get around to, to uh, make his way. He got a job in an office, but of course, like like everyone at that time, you were paid next to nothing. Part of the whole ethos of the um, of the East India Company was that uh, everybody was expected to have something, some business on the side. If you wanted to make any money at all, you could not do that in your official job, in your official capacity during office hours. Any money, any fortune would have to be made outside. But of course, you need connections for that. You know, you need to know how to, uh, well, the English word um, hustle, right? How to get out there, how to scramble. And he was either too proud to do that or or too shy, right? Too timid uh, to do that. But he, he made no friends and no connections and no business contacts. And the climate did nothing for his health. And he wrote home, he said, I have not had one happy day since I left my native land. Now, all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden he was alone, he was homesick, uh, he had nothing to do, and decided to educate himself, started reading, so that he was a self-educated, self-made man. And yet, he fell victim to depression. There were... uh Two occasions in which he tried to commit suicide. He tried to shoot himself with a pistol, and both times he missed. But then fate intervened. Fate in the form of France. Now, we'll 
We'll be talking about this in a minute, but uh, France was the big enemy, and France was there not far away. Uh, Clive, at this time, was working in Madras, and the French took Madras. The French under a commander named Dupleche. I'll be talking about him in a minute, but the, the, the French took Madras, and all of a sudden, <laughs> Clive was out of a job. And the East India Company needed, needed to do something. So instead of office workers, they found themselves with a militia. Clavin, hundreds of other men went into the war with the idea of fighting against the French, right? Um, members of the, uh, the army, the, the sort of extra-official army, call it a, a company army. And he fought well. His bravery was noticed. His leadership capacity was remarked on. And uh, fairly soon, he was being regarded as a military genius. And so he was given command of 500 men and ordered to move against the French. But let me talk about the French, right? The... Um, Portuguese and the Dutch are no longer the enemy, no longer competitors, certainly not in India. The French had taken their place. They founded Pondicherry in 1674, and by now, almost a 100 years later, it was a city with 70,000 inhabitants and... Uh, Pondicherry is, is not far from Madras, where the English were. The English at this point uh, had Bombay. Bombay had been given to them by the Portuguese as a kind of suborno, as a kind of bribe. Well, as a kind of dote, right? A, a dowry, a wedding dowry, uh, because Prince Charles II, right, who, the the prince who was the Stuart king who was restored to the throne after the Commonwealth under Cromwell um, could not continue. There was a restoration. Charles II looking around for a wife and the Braganza family who had um, organized the um, sublevacion, right, the uprising against Spain and who were largely responsible for Portuguese independence. Uh, they were now part of the new dynasty in Portugal, uh, trying to establish themselves and uh, trying to to make connections with other monarchs, although with, with very low status, right? Because they, they did have this stigma of right, parvenus, right? Uh, advenedithos, in addition to which Catherine of Braganza was not very pretty. Charles II looked at her and uh, said, You have brought me a bat. Me habéis traído un murciélago. Anyway, as, as part of that, as part of that, in order to convince him to marry her, Bombay had been included. And so little by little, the British had established themselves in Bombay. They were they were not in control. The natives were in control. The natives were doing all the business. Uh, that made Bombay was was a little like uh, Manila in the Philippines, right? Uh, in that case, the Spanish were there, but they they were not the merchants. They were not the ones making the uh, the deals. So that yeah, Bombay was British, but but not British. Um, Calcutta, on the other hand, Calcutta, their 
at the mouth of the Ganges River. Uh, Calcutta, very British. The British very much in control. And the third place, Madras. But Madras, perilously close to Pondicherry. Perilously close to, to the French. Now, uh, the French had been there, the French with a, a completely different attitude, a completely different system. Everything done logically, everything done rationally, and everything done under royal patronage. So, organized, managed by bureaucrats rather than merchants, and in a very orderly way. Whereas the East India Company tended to do things in a chaotic way, and usually myopic right very short-sighted nobody was there to play the long game the idea was to, uh, to to make a lot of money and then to get out of the tropics before disease killed you now in the case of the french uh, the director general was a man named dupleche a statesman um, model soldier and one who did have the big picture and wanted to play the long game so that when England and France were at peace, Dupleche understood perfectly that this was, this was temporary, that war was going to be inevitable. And so he won the, the loyalty and affection of local princes and was responsible for fortifying Pondicherry and training his army very carefully. And in 1744, when war was declared, it was no surprise. The British fleet, uh, tactically, they had to withdraw from the Bay of Bengal and um, because they were necessary on, on both sides of India, on the East Coast and on the West Coast. The logical place for them would be Ceylon, right? Today's Sri Lanka. And this is when Dupleche moved against Madras, taking all of the property of the British East India Company and the governor and officers of that company back with him to Pondicherry. And uh, there was a sort of a triumphal entry, you know, the, the way the Romans used to do it. Right, the the ritual humiliation of the enemy, but the British were able to respond. There was another. There was a fort nearby. A British troops put Dupleche and Pondicherry under siege. But it was, it was, uh, again, it was chaotic. It was not well done, and uh, the siege had to be lifted, and the British went away, and Dupleche became a hero, a hero in his own eyes, a hero in the eyes of. The king of France and advisors, and most importantly, a hero in the eyes of the Indian allies, who now believed that uh, it was in their best interests to back France rather than England. The long-term strategy being would uh, to uh, to set up um, a French, or at least a pro-French ruler in the Deccan Peninsula. The Deccan was the most important state in southern India, and from there they might be able to dominate uh, southern India itself. Dupleche saw that it was going to be possible to make France the greatest power in that country and uh, completely eclipse 
the English, who, after all, were were not there officially. They, they, this was a, a merchant company, and they were very successful. They helped a local ruler from the Carnatic, the Carnatic, this area on the coast that Pondicherry and Madras are located in, and and um, and they see that um, they got Arcot. They captured Arcot, the capital, and well. Um, other people knew they, they were next. Um, uh, there was a um, there was another local king who uh, who went to the English offering a, allegiance, but then he was killed by his own people. And the French were able to put their own choice on the throne as well. So things could not be going better for them, and the English were thoroughly aware that uh, their their position in India was now in great danger. They, they were at risk of being expelled. Okay, I have to take a break. I'll be back in a minute. en lo que hacen, tanta dedicación porque luego tienes a lo largo del máster tienes feedbacks con ellos y ellos te dicen exactamente cuáles son tus puntos débiles cuáles son tus fortalezas cuáles son tus weaknesses debilidades, ¿no? ¿sabes? y cuando ves a alguien que hace tan, con tanta pasión algo no te viene tan natural decepcionarle porque si tú ves a alguien que da el 100% a mí por, por lo menos no me viene como decepcionarte así es una cuestión de respeto que luego se, desa se desarrolla y se ve también con los compañeros cuando sobre todo en un método tan dinámico tan drilling class maravilloso la motivación desde el primer minuto hasta el último es un factor importante pero no el único la excelencia de nuestros profesores nuestros maestros de toda la vida esos que hacían que el resto de tu vida sintieses verdadera pasión por aquella asignatura Así son nuestros profesores del Máster en Inglés Profesional. ¿Por qué no llamas? ¿Vas a perder esta oportunidad? 91-133-5833. 91-133-5833. Llama y solicita gratis tu prueba de nivel. 91-133-5833. Te sientes orgulloso de ti mismo porque tú lo puedes hacer. Con el Máster en Inglés Profesional puedes conseguir lo que quieras. Tú lo puedes hacer. Ahora puedes aprender inglés con Baugan y Alexa de Amazon. Solo tienes que decir... Alexa, quiero aprender inglés. Bienvenido a Aprende Idiomas con Alexa. Hoy vas a poder aprender lecciones de inglés nivel iniciación con Alexa en colaboración con Baugan. Podrás aprender desde nuevo vocabulario a pronunciación y mucho más. Cada lección contiene secciones de práctica y de preguntas. Empecemos. Veamos ahora cinco actividades con el verbo ir. To go. Ir al gimnasio es. To go to the gym. La G de. Gym. Suena casi como una H. To go to the gym. Dilo tú. To go to the gym. 
Correcto. Eso es. Practica inglés con Baugan y con Alexa de Amazon. Acuérdate, solo tienes que decir... Alexa, quiero aprender inglés. Esto sí que es un... Buen comienzo. Te toca. Me apunté al curso trimestral porque quería mejorar el inglés, lo que pasa es que no estaba muy convencido porque no tenía muy claro si iba a ser una clase pues aburrida y monótona que hemos tenido siempre pues en el instituto, que al final no, no te motiva nada, pero el primer día que nos metimos ahí y el profesor nos empezó a meter caña, pues vi que eso pues no iba a ser para nada monótono. Cursos trimestrales de Baugan, 91-133-5833 o grupobaugan.com una semana en un lugar apartado. Nativos angloparlantes de todas partes del mundo, uno por cada estudiante. Terminantemente prohibido hablar en español. Actividades organizadas y conversaciones en inglés a todas horas. No exageramos. Aquí o hablas inglés o hablas inglés. Y da igual las veces que te lo contemos. Hasta que no lo vivas no sabrás que Baugantown te va a quitar el miedo al inglés para siempre. Lo que pasa en Baugantown no se puede contar. Tienes que vivirlo. Ven a Baugantown. Más información, grupobaugan.com. Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo la cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda, para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de másters. Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos. 911335833. 911335833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos. 911335833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del máster. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Aquí llega Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pass perfect. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pass perfect, pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. ¡Wow! Eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Field gap, Lorena. ¡Wow! Increíble. Ha sacado todas, todas. ¡Qué barbaridad! Lorena Martínez, señoras y señores, qué crack. El examen es de 10. Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método Baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911335832, 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. You're listening. Estás escuchando Vaughn Radio. Lo que escuchas, Vaughn Radio.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Western Civilization from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on the first part of the program, I have been talking about the life and times of a man everybody loves to hate. A man who um, compared himself to to the great men of the Spanish Empire, to Cortes, to Pizarro, and who occupies a very similar place in the history of the British Empire, which, again, he makes makes him the, the, the man everybody loves to hate. Uh, there's a statue of him, a statue dedicated to Robert Clive, right, his, his likeness, outside the foreign office in London today. Now, that statue was put there not by the East India Company, certainly not by the Foreign Office, and not by a grateful British Empire, not by public acclaim or public subscription. No, it was put there at the beginning of the 20th century <laughs> by Lord Curzon, one of the people who most strongly believed in the integrity of the British Empire at a moment in which it was being called into question. Curzon, uh, who had been governor of India and wanted to promote uh, the idea of the British Empire, that everyone should be proud of a man like Robert Clive. And of course, today, that statue is very controversial. And today, uh, a lot of people would like to see that statue removed. Today, people are talking about maybe a, a museum of empire where old statues can uh, can rest in peace. And this monumental architecture doesn't have to be destroyed. It can be relocated the way much of East Europe has done with its um, communist past. Now, I, I personally... Um, I hate that idea, the idea of removing statues or changing names, because it is often done by people who prefer historical amnesia, right? They, they see a monument to, to uh, somebody who they don't like, and they say, I, I don't want to see that person. I don't want to be reminded of what he did. In other words, th these people are not trying to, uh, to do, these people are not trying to engage with history. No, just the opposite. They are trying to eliminate history because they find aspects of it unpleasant. But, uh, let's, let's go back. Let's go back to Clive, Clive of India, you know, generation after generation of, um, young boys reading about Clive of India. It was con you know, it was it was in all the children's literature, certainly during the 19th century. And uh, Clive, that was his last name, right? Robert Clive. Clive became a first name. Clive became a very popular name for boys. So, yes, uh, 26 years before the taking of Madras, um, Robert Clive, born in Shropshire. And as I mentioned on the first part of the program, Always called a reprobate, always called incorrigible, always called a ne'er-do-well or a no-good. 
at the time, he was involved in a group of boys called the Lawless Resolutes. And as I mentioned, um, didn't like India, at least initially. Tried to kill himself twice. Right? Uh, one day, somebody walked into his room and he said, uh, uh, there's a gun on that table. Would you please fire it out of the window? Today, I have held it to my head twice, but both times... It didn't fire. So I suppose I must be destined to live for a reason. And then, as, as I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, the, um, he um, was out of a job after the taking of the city of Madras. And like hundreds of other ex-office workers now became part of the company militia. And there he came into his own. And there, he was given command of 500 men. And he he set off. The, uh, uh, the weather was stormy, but he pushed on through thunder, through lightning and rain to the fort. The French were so surprised to see the English army approach. You know, they didn't have, know how many men were coming, but, but more than there were there. And uh, the French abandoned the fort which was in a ster- terrible state of repair uh, the um the french regrouped and came back with around 3000 men intending to retake the fort but in the middle of the night clive took all of his men out of the fort and attacked the french while they were asleep decimating them and returning to camp without having lost Anyone, no bajas, no casualties on the English side. Well, some of the men were sent home. Some of the men were, uh, some of the men had died um, in the meantime of tropical diseases. Uh, he was left with only 300 people and very little food when the French army came. And for 50 days, 50 days, the French besieged the fort. Uh, said the Aaron, right? To, to put under siege or to besiege. Uh, most of the people, most of these 300 were in fact sepoys, uh, natives. And part of the colonial story, at least, is that the, uh, the, the natives asked to have their food ration reduced because they were capable of living on less than the British were. Now, to me, this doesn't sound true. It sounds like a, a justification for an act of, of racism, but that is the story that, that, uh, that went into the books. Finally, the, the French came with their Indian allies, and these, these Indian allies had elephants. The elephants had iron on their heads, so th- these were like uh, uh, living arietes, right? Uh, rams. Right, the, the word ram in English could be ariete. It can also be um, carnero for obvious reasons. And to ram is como embestir. And so these were these were elephant elephant rams. However, uh, the elephants, you know, as as they had been in Roman times, war elephants can easily be frightened, and war elephants can easily uh, turn on their own human co-troops. Uh, uh, finally, uh, finally the French left. Just when Cl- 
Clive and his men thought that they could not hold out, they could not resist any longer, the French left. After two months of living like this, in that final battle, I mean, maybe Clive had not had food, but he did have ammunition. They say that in the uh, the final hour of the battle, uh, Clive's men, at that point reduced to only 200, had fired 12,000 rounds of bullet and that the forces putting them under siege had suffered an enormous number of casualties. Remember, casualty, uh, Baja. After this, the Indians began to call Clive the Sabbat Jung, which means daring in war, right? Daring arrojado, atrevido, valiente. And hundreds of troops native troops began to desert right they they began simply to to leave put down their weapons and leave the french service and the the other part of the uh, clive story here connected to mango trees mango groves and now groves are um okay we we normally un arboleda that would be a stand of trees some places in England use the word cops, a cops of tree. We do not say that in the United States. Stand of trees. Um, another word, it, you know, if it's dense, it could be called a thicket of trees, arboleda. But a grove is something else. A grove, grove refers to fruit trees, nut trees, and it's, well, much more Spanish is to talk like a, a, a pinar, right? Instead of pine grove. Naranjal instead of an orange grove or, or cocal instead of a coconut grove. I have no idea what you would call a mango grove in Spanish. Mangal? Mangaleda? In Spanish, if you do want to talk about this, you often use the word huerto, but huerto is not limited to trees. A grove is exclusively trees. And, uh, one of the, um, one of the conditions of groves is that there is no undergrowth, no sotobosque, right? The um, the trees are there para, para ser cosechados, right? To, to be harvested. Now we also have um, we also have this word orchard. All orchards are groves, but not all groves are orchards. Orchard is uh is it's always deliberate and regular spacing and orchard orchard is used almost exclusively for fruits and nuts right frutos secos so, so you would talk about i don't know a walnut orchard no galeda but this would be evenly spaced uh, for some reason we do not talk about um olive orchards or at least i've never seen it used that way uh, we talk about olive groves um olivares Perhaps because, you know, traditionally you, you didn't see olives the way you do in, um, for example, in Jaén today. They, you go to Jaén and they say they have 50 million olive trees in the province of Jaén. One for, one for every Spaniard. And if you look at the landscape, you will see that uh, most of those trees are arranged with mathematical precision. But um, that wasn't true until, until the 19th century. 
right? Uh, prior to that, and uh, for example, in Roman times, you would have groups of trees uh, that, that were there naturally or that had been planted, but it, in an irregular way, uh, 20, 30, 40, but, but not, uh, not with a precision. And of course, um, in Roman times, when olive oil from Betica was, was the star, was the, uh, was the great export, all of the olive groves would have to be close to transport. And that transport only made sense if it was fluvial or, or maritime. So that until the 19th century, Andalusia's famous olive groves were all along the coast or very close to the Guadalquivir. Otherwise, as I say, it made no economic sense to harvest and transport that olive oil over land. And of course, this, this would have been groves, not, not an orchard. And who knows? In the 18th century, in, among the mangoes, right on the Carnatic area, the, the coast there on the Bay of Bengal, whether we are actually talking about a, a grove or an orchard. But it was from these mango groves that the surprise attack, right, the emboscada, the ambush came. Clive and his men were going home and the, the moon was rising. Yeah, right. We got this full moon and, uh, all of a sudden you've got enormous artillery fire. Clive has to send the baggage carts back. Uh, he and his men go down into a kind of a, a thekia, right? A, a ditch. The uh, French artillery, very well placed. Obviously, they've, they've been waiting for a while. It looks very bad. Uh, Clive sent out a man named Simmons to, um, to get information, right? As reconnaissance. And he found another trench uh, where the French were. Now he knew part of their deployment, part of their, their layout, right? The positions they were occupying. He went back and Clive was able to cut the French communications, break up the army, capture the French officers. And well, the worst, the worst part about it was that at, at this point, um, France and England were no longer at war. <laughs> they were at peace. Um, and this meant that there would be no help from the British army or navy. This meant that these, um, soldiers were at least supposedly, in the employ of friendly Indian princes. The uh, Clive and his, his brilliant operation in the mango, mango groves led to the collapse of British power. The um, uh, uh, puppet kings that the French had installed were, were killed, but um, the, the, the French power was much diminished. Now, at this point, a... Uh, a young man, uh, ambitious man, um, Indian prince who had quite a bit of power over Bengal, Orissa, and Behar under the name of Suraja Daula decided that he wanted the English out of Calcutta. He didn't like what they were doing there. And of course, in all the British histories, this man is wicked and cowardly. 
and cruel and filled with hate. He and his army advance on Calcutta. The garrison there is small. They are not expecting him. The fortifications are weak. The governor and military commander run away, uh, whereas uh, <laughs> women and children uh, did not have access to these boats uh, on the Ganges. Women and children were dependent on the mercy of the enemy. And uh, uh, one of the civilians stepped up, a man named um, Howell, uh, began to negotiate. Now, Suraja Daula said that they, they had nothing to fear. But then put 146 men and one woman into a very, very small guard room in the middle of the heat. Uh, we're talking about uh, the 20th of June in the year 1756 in an area of something like, uh, they're very reduced, something like five square meters, six square meters, um, for 146 men and one woman. Immediately, people began to suffocate, to die. Some were um, desperate to get up to the, where the air was and didn't care how they did it. You know, they, they, they were um, fighting to get to the air. Other people dead, dying, um, people crying out, praying begging, right, supplicando, begging for the the dead uh, to be taken out, to be removed from the cell. And uh, they were there all night. In the following morning, the door was opened and only 23 people had survived. That incident uh, became notorious. That incident became a justification for everything the British ever did in the future uh, that was called the Black Hole of Calcutta. And throughout the rest of the 18th century, along the 19th century, people were going to make references to the Black Hole of Calcutta. It was it was something that was uh, never forgotten. You know, when I was a child, um, uh, television cartoons, you would hear references to the Black Hole of Calcutta. Uh, you don't anymore, but... Uh, Yes, Calcutta had fallen. Um, to make matters worse, France was again at war with England. And France was preparing a large force for military action in India. In other words, whatever Clive was going to do in, um, in, in uh, Calcutta, he would have to do it before the French troops arrived. It happened that um for logistical reasons the french the french couldn't prepare that many troops in so little time and it took them 2 years to send these fresh troops to india there was a also there was an incident um there was a fortress and um it was being held by the enemy it had been bombarded right the defenses were sort of weak but uh, the enemy was was there. Um, they say that a soldier uh, was drunk. A man named Strahan was drunk. He had been drinking all night and toward dawn, he he was in the, uh, the neighborhood of the fort. Uh, he crawled through a hole that had been 
made by artillery and found himself in the garrison. Um, at that point, he fired his pistol and shouted, uh, I take, I took the fort. I took the fort. And evidently the, the, the garrison that were there, right? The, uh, the enemy, uh, believed that he was just the first of many. Uh, they, they fired at him, but missed and then ran away. The, the English came and, and found this drunken soldier in possession of, of the fort. And, it, you know, he was going to be um, punished for insubordination, dereliction of duty, and uh, public inebriation. But then he promised that um, he would never, as long as he lived, take another fort by himself. Meanwhile, uh, Suraja Daula was in conversation with the French. Uh, they were going to collaborate fully. He was going to welcome the French into his kingdom. But he had rivals. One of these rivals, Mir Jaffier, contacted Clive and said, if you help me, then I will give the British the same deal that my enemy is talking about giving the French. So Clive immediately, he set out with um, um, 3,000 men for the capital, uh, Suraj Dawla's capital, Murshidabad. But there was an army of 50,000 men waiting for him at a village called Plassey. This army of 50,000 contained a, um, a, a small number of French troops as well. Now, there, there, among the enemy troops was Mir Jaffier, who, who was acting like an enemy. And uh, Clive began to doubt whether this deal he had made was actually going to going to happen you know quite possibly he was just sitting on the fence as we say and para no mojarse no uh, this is an english frase hecha an english idiom to sit on the fence como vacilar no 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 tomar parte clive called a council of war in order to decide whether they should move forward to meet the enemy or stay where they were. Uh, the overwhelming majority voted in favor of engaging with the enemy right then. Clive, <laughs> Clive, uh, Clive was not. No, Clive was being more prudent. Uh, Clive voted with the, uh, the, the seven officers who said no, not now. But, um, well, he, he went into a, a group of trees to try to make up his mind and, and see what to do. The, the Battle of Plassey is going to change everything. But I'm afraid I've run out of time. I'm going to have to talk about that battle on my next program.
Al entrar en el mercado laboral, lo único que cuenta es ser más atractivo que otros candidatos, gozar de mayor estimación. Y el aspecto que más impacta a una empresa cuando mira a un candidato joven es su nivel de inglés. Si es muy alto, es contratado. Si no lo es, pues no, aunque sea el número uno de su promoción. Nuestro MIP, nuestro máster en inglés profesional, resuelve este tema para el candidato. El máster en inglés profesional de Baugan. Llámenos 911335833. 911335833. Porque aprenden, disfrutan, conviven, juegan, experimentan, hacen amigos y lo más importante, asimilan el idioma de forma natural y pierden el miedo a hablar, abriéndose paso en este complicado mundo de la comunicación. En inglés, así son los campamentos de verano Baugan. Cada año más de 3.000 familias confían en nosotros para el aprendizaje del inglés de sus hijos, en los distintos tipos de campamentos que ofrecemos. Por ejemplo, programa completo de inmersión en inglés con alojamiento incluido. Tus hijos hablarán inglés durante todo el día mientras participan en talleres, juegos y actividades deportivas y multiaventura. Y todo eso sin clases. Todas las modalidades de campamentos Baugan están diseñados para niños y niñas entre 6 y 15 años, independientemente de la programación o la instalación. En nuestros campamentos de inglés se acostumbran a utilizar el inglés sin miedo y con total confianza, en un entorno rural, acogedor y seguro. La coordinación pedagógica de Baugan asegura un ambiente de inversión, cuidado y de calidad. Tráelos a nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés. 911335832. 911335832. Ahora con nuevas facilidades de pago. Agua plazo sin intereses. Llámanos al 911335832. Campamentos de verano Baugan. El líder del sector. 911335832. No lo dejes para el último momento. Aprenderán inglés mientras viven mil aventuras. No olvides preguntar por el resto de campamentos e inmersiones de la línea Yu.